0: The Academic Podcast
1: Agency.
2: Welcome to the YTEL Stories Podcast, a podcast exploring audio storytelling in all its wondrous forms and why we as humans feel compelled to do such an act. Um, I'm Daniel, I'm a storyteller, story lover, and I'm the creative director at the Story Museum in Oxford.
0: And my name's Will Hurd. I am a story lover, podcast maker, documentary filmmaker, and we're very excited to be back in your ears for episode five, which I believe, after some deliberation, is going to be an introduction to the crazy world and uh, sonic stylings of
2: Lord Buckley. That's correct. We're going to listen to the Naz. Lord Buckley was um, a cabaret performer who became a recording artist. It's a strange record in that it's the retelling of the Jesus and Nazareth story, but in this very odd cross between Southern Baptist minister and hipster jazz musician speak. Do we know much about Lord Buckley? Tell me, what decade are we in for this piece of work? So he died in, the, in 1960. It was the 40s and 50s. He kind of had this kind of character that was almost like a preacher, kind of like a hipster preacher. Um, he was a, a sort of stand-up performer and um, inspired many people after him, including Dizzy Gillespie, including people like Lenny Bruce. Um, and even the track that we're hearing today inspired the Beatles to write Hey Jude.
0: Wow, Okay, So you're saying he was, uh, you used the phrase stand-up there, but you don't necessarily mean comedian. You mean, uh, but he was doing nightclubs with this material, was he?
2: Yeah, he was a performer. And he had, there was a series of records he made, or series of tracks that he made, where he was retelling classic stories, but in kind of hipster language. So he had um, a small um, ensemble backing him, but the, the score is gorgeous, you'll hear it in a minute. Um, but he retold these kind of classic stories, but in hipster language. And this one is the story of The Naz. The Naz by Lord Buckley.
0: Let's have a listen. Here we go.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes again, there's me, and there's you. And I dig all you cats out there whipping and wailing and jumping up and down and sucking up that fine juice and patting each other on the back and telling each other who the greatest cat in the world is. Mr. Malloncoff, Mr. Dalloncoff, Mr. Eisenhorn, Woos and Weas and woozer, and Mr. Woodhiller, Mr. and Mr. Churchill, and all them hills, they gonna get it straight. If they can't straighten it, they know a cat that knows a cat that's gonna get it straight. Well, I'm gonna put a cat on you. Was the sweetest gone as wailing as cat that ever stomped on his sweet swinging sphere and they called his your cat the that was the cat's name he was a carpenter kitty now the was the kind of a cat that come on so wild and so sweet and so strong and so witted that when he laid it why it stayed there. Naturally, all the rest of the cat look to see what he's putting down. This the man look at that cat blow. Get let the cat go, the man, look at it. get out the way, let the cat. He said, man don't bug me, get off my back. I'm trying to dig what the cat's saying, Jack's a cool. They're pushing the Naz. Cause they want to dig his lick, you see. Dig his milk lick. So the Naz say. <laughs> Wait a minute, babies. Tell you what I'm gonna do. I ain't gonna take 2, for 6, 8 of you cats but I'm gonna take 12 of you studs and straighten you all at the same time, <laughs> you cats look like you pretty your boys, you buddy with me, so the Naz and his buddies was goofing off down the boulevard one day and they run into a little cat with a bent frame, so the Nas Look at this little cat with the bent frame, and he say... What's the matter to you, baby? And the little cat with the bent frame, he say, Well, my frame is bent, Naz. It's been bent from me in front. So the Naz looked at the little cat with the bent frame, and he put the golden eyes of love on this little kitty, and he looked right down into the windows of his soul, and he said to the little cat, He said, Straight! Captain up straight in the now and everybody jumping up and down and say, look what the Nas put on that boy. You dug him before. Dig him now. Yes, I can feel it. Now you see the nails are coming on so strong and so fine and so great. Talking about when's he going to appear next. What did he do there? He put it down once for the cat. The cat dug it, didn't dig it. Put it down twice, dug it, didn't dig it. Put it down the third time the cat dug it. Wham! Walked away with his eyes bugging out here and there, bumping in there, everybody. Now he's coming on so fine and so strong. They're pulling on his coattail. They want him to sign the autograph. They want him to do this gig here. They want him to do that gig there. They want him to make it to the radio, with the video, and all that jazz. He can't make all that jazz. Like a splendid cast of carpenter the he has got his own leg. But when he know he should show to blow and cannot go, because he got some strain on him, he sends a couple of these cats, did his straightening. So came a little old 50 cent gig one day, and the Naz couldn't make it, so he put it on two of these cats. He said, boss, go straighten that uh, little riff over there. Boss said, take it off your mind, we got it covered. So on the way over, the boss run into a little old 20-cent pool of water. And he gets right in the middle of the boat. And all of a sudden, land, thunderstorm, lightning flashing, and thunder roaring, and the boat going up and down, and the poke cats thinking every minute going to be the last. And one cat looked up, and here come the nest cool as anyone you ever see, right across the water, walking. And the Naz, is a little boy on board, I think his name is Jude, on board the boat. He said, hey, Naz, can I make it out there with you? Naz say, make it, Jude. And old Jude went stomping off that boat, took about four steps, dropped his whole car, <laughs> the Naz had to stash him back on board again. So the Naz look at these kiddies and he say, what's the matter you babies now? I said, what's going on here, boys? He say, what's taking place? <laughs> Say, what's all this fuss about here? What's going on? I said, man. I said what's going on? I said, can't you see the storm, storming, and the lightning flashing and the thunder rolling? And the Naz say, I told you stay cool, didn't I, babies? Now the fame of the is jumping. The grapevine is shooting out spots 40 feet long and they're talking about what he said, and how they stood up to all these big bad cats and dug all that bad jazz and put him all down. And what he they said he's gonna do and where he's gonna be and how he's gonna be it did the grapevine is jumping so bad. There is now 16,000 of these studs and kiddies in the Nazis' nice little hometown where the cat lived, looking to get straight. Well, the Naz know he can't straighten them all. There's too small a place to want to hang everybody up. Nobody can make it. So the Naz look out at these 16,000 studs and kiddies and they say to them, Come on, babies. Just cut on out down the road. And there went the Nars, swinging away ahead of all these studs and kiddies and 16,000 stomping up a big hole swinging beat behind him, and our great necklace of love is supercharging and charging to him, and oh, it's brother to brother and sister to sister, and then Naz is stomping on a sweet swinging beat, going down the road, Naz talking about how pretty the flowers, how pretty the hours, how, how pretty me, how pretty you, how pretty he, how pretty she, Nas had them pretty eyes, he wanted everybody to see through his eyes so they could see how pretty it was, and to have such a wailing gorgeous mighty God. Time that before you know it, it was coffee in time and these tall cats is 42 miles out of town. Ain't nobody got the first biscuit. Well, the Nas look at these cats and they say they're kicking the sand out there. The Nas say, You hungry, ain't you, babies? say, Yeah, Naz we digging you so hard at what you're putting down that we didn't prepare, Naz. We goofed. Yes, that's what you call it. So the Naz say, well, uh, we got to take it easier. We wouldn't want to go ahead and order up something you might not like, would we? And they say, no, Naz, you put it down and we'll pick it up. So the Naz stepped back a few paces, and he said, oh, great swinging flowers of the fields. And they said, oh, great stop signal the sound of beauty. And the Naz say, stamp upon the terror. And they hit it. And the Naz say, straighten no miracle of the body. Went up, and he says, straighten your arms, and the arms went up, and he said, higher, and the arms went higher, and the now say, dig in And they dug it, and when they did, wham! the thunder went too, and they look in the left hand, is a great big sweet stuffed smoked fish. And in the other, a big, thick loaf of that gone crazy honey-tasting non-stop sweet-swinging southern bread. Why, these polecats flipped. Naz never did nothing simple. When he laid it, he laid it. So when the saints, when the saints, marchin marching in, you marching in. Where the Z go marching in Hallelujah! I want to be in that number The Z go marching in Say where the Zed go marching in Where the Zed go marching in Hallelujah! I want to be in that number Let's go
0: wow <laughs> that's absolutely insane so isn't it so it, it is something I don't even know where to begin so he's he's adopting uh a kind of Southern Baptist
2: preacher vibe, right? Crossed, crossed with a kind of hipster jazz speak, nineteen forties, kind of fast talking. Yeah, all of it.
0: So he was white yeah, because he he's... sounds very black, right? He's got a, a very James Brown uh, preacher kind of vibe going on.
2: He's, uh, but he was a, he was a white. His father was from Manchester. Oh, really? He was, yeah, and, and came over on a boat, and he was, he was a white uh, American who was his... If you see... It was worth looking at pictures of him. He looks like a kind of uh, like English royalty almost, you know, with a twiddly moustache. He was a very... And he wore a pith helmet and things. So he had this... I think essentially he was a guy who grew up in the 30s as a on stage at cabarets and built this cabaret act, this kind of persona, over the th- over 20 years and, and th- these recordings were made in the sort of early to mid 50s um, and he made this kind of series of, uh, of tracks that were retelling old stories. He did Edgar Allan e- Poe's The Raven and he did one on Gandhi and this one which is the Naz which is based on Jesus of Nazareth um, but in this very affected and brilliantly done kind of hipster, Baptist minister kind of speak bizarre
0: yeah. So, I mean, I guess that is part of the whole Southern religious preaching thing is because he's telling the religious story. I mean, on the first listen, I got to be honest, I find it quite difficult to follow. But is he essentially telling the story of Christ? Is that, that's is that what you take it. to? Yeah, yeah okay, yeah,
2: that's exactly what's happening. I mean, it's it's got that thing that great storytellers have that is just great rhythm and propulsion. In a way, it doesn't matter what he's saying. Right. It doesn't you know? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yes, that story's in he's there. He's
0: so into it, isn't he? He's, he's full so of the spirit. It. Yeah. And it's probably made stronger, I, I guess, by the fact that the literal uh, understanding of what he's saying is obscured almost by his enthusiasm for
2: what he's trying to share with you. And by the language that he's using. And in, you know, and opposed to like, so so the last episode we were listening to Ken Nordine, who's kind of, we were identifying, sits in this place where he is. It, he speaks in a way that it almost is sitting on the beat, but it doesn't feel like music. He is the, mu- you know, it's, it's, he relates to the, to the score in a really fascinating way, like a jazz musician. But Lord Buckley sits another way where his voice is the music. His voice is the rhythm. It is mm. the beat. And the musicians are playing in such a way that they sit underneath it. So it's like, it's almost the flip opposite of Nordine.
0: It's fascinating that idea Um, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well in in various different contexts where you come across people that are good public speakers and bad public speakers. Mm. And it's always, I've always had an interest with, you know, watching people that, um, that are good public speakers. I'm sure many of us uh, enjoy that, but it seems to me it's not dependent most of the time, on the actual content of what's being said, and I've always had a fascination with that because there's this idea, isn't there, that only in any communication, only um, you know, ten percent or something like that, is the actual words that are being used. So it's all the context, it's the timbre, it's mm. the the pacing, the meter. You know, that's where so much of the meaning of communication comes from. And I think when you get great orators. Uh, whether they be good or bad right you know you think of Churchill's speeches or you know any um, big towering characters of history you know Hitler making his uh, those terrifying speeches that you see in those old black and white showreels mm. you know not understanding the words again but you can you can hear the uh, the the insane devotion that his Mm. delivery manages to inspire right Mm. you know so there's something really fascinating about that i think the fact that stories are so much more than their literal
2: takeaway meaning it's the use for me it's the use of rhythm in his speech you know the way that Everything has this meter. Everything is going somewhere. Everything is building up all the time, and the musicians. Everything, all of the pieces of the puzzle work together to take you on this journey, and it's it is a it's a rhythmic, uh, tonal and excitement journey that you go on. That doesn't even make sense, but it does make sense. But it's like it's <laughs> <laughs> but
0: so. That, okay, but, here's here's a question for you. Here's a, uh, a philosophical uh, hypothesis, or or ponderance is that do you think it can you think of any examples where it works the other way where actually somebody's content is incredibly rich yet it's not able to reach people because the delivery is so uninspiring
2: well, I, I just think you need to look at the last 10 years of Labour MPs, right? I think, <laughs> But I think, this, I think about this a lot. Because That's so true. No, that is because, so true. Okay, so, so, so this is, you know, the, we are dealing the kind of skills of oration and storytelling or kind of, to, you know, using the sk- tone of your voice is something that we uh, experienced on a day-to-day level. And the people who are successful are the people who have the tone of voice and the understanding of rhythm and how they use their voice. To, to take people with them it, it convinces people and it's so mm. i think you know we listen to that i've heard it before you'd never heard it before you didn't understand anything that was going on but you loved it right? i understand that he
0: wanted me to be excited about what he was feeling that he wanted mm. me to be greatly inspired by this very important message that he had to tell me you know and that's captivating right
2: and, it's, and it so it reminds me of um, a story. Uh, a friend of mine was a sound engineer at Earl's Court, And these um, Baptist ministers turned up. They were doing a big recording. And these guys hypnotised and wooed the audience using the rhythm of their voice. It was like they picked it up and pushed them at such a point that people were falling over in their droves just from the use of rhythm and the use of tone. And it's, it's such a powerful tool. So... This idea that the
0: storyteller and is also the hypnotist, right, or the or the in the case of what you've just described there, the mass manipulator. Mm. Do you think there's ethical um, questions around that? I mean, what what is that? I mean, clearly there's people in history that have had very very persuasive styles of communication, styles of storytelling. Where actually the content of what they've got to share is highly questionable.
2: Well, look, at, I mean, look at Hitler. He was a he was a great public speaker. Yeah, you know, he. That's. I think that was you know one of the things, and and there was. I don't know if you've uh, if you've ever watched the Werner Herzog film about Klaus Kinski. It's called My Best Fiend. No, I haven't. I'd love to oh, see man. that. You've got to watch it. It's a fantastic documentary. But Klaus Kinski was a was a strange strange man, right? And. and there was a point early on in his career, and it was after Hitler, where Kinsky would stand up in stadiums. Thousands of people would come out and Kinski would stand in stadiums and make these almost nonsensical speeches, but with great passion. Mm. Right? It was just him on a stage with a microphone doing these very impassioned speeches, just talking gibberish in some ways. And people would gather in their droves and they would throw things at him. And shout at him and and berate him, and it was almost—it almost seems like when you watch it, this kind of weird kickback against the spell that Hitler had managed to put over him.
0: Wow! And so he was knowingly providing a catharsis for that that event, or what was what? What do you think he thought was going on?
2: I think I mean, I think he was just an incredible egotist. I think he loved being on a stage and holding using right. his voice to hold uh, the intention and the kind of uh, the uh, the focus of so many people. But for the German public, it felt like it was this massive cathartic exercise of having someone who had this kind of very um, hypnotic uh, and, and wooing kind of tone. And uh, and kicking back against it. It's that's very strange. Re- that's really fascinating. So
0: that's like a cultural anger at the the skill of rhetoric in itself being manifested exactly. in this. Yeah, and wow. You,
2: look at, you know, you look you look at the last uh, the last period of time of uh, people like you know people like Boris Johnson. So I read a review of a book called
0: Chums. I apologise that I forget the name of the author. But it was basically charting the schools at Eton that so many of our leaders and MPs on both sides of the political left and right divide have been through this school. And so they were talking about the debating club, okay, that is a big part of Eton tradition. He was basically saying that in order to encourage and teach the skills of rhetoric, it was very, very important for any speaker to not get too caught up in the details or the facts, to the point where you have this culture of where these people are debating. If one of the speakers veered too closely to actually stating facts about their argument, they would get heckled by the audience that would all go, facts, 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 and they'd have to stop talking and go back to the rhetoric. I just thought that was a beautiful vignette of political training right, of we don't care about the facts. What we want is the passion. What we want is the emotion. That Mm. will win the argument.
2: And this is, and it's... It strikes me in both cases, there is something that bypasses the brain. There's something in this kind of style ancient. of storytelling. It's ancient and it's and it gets you in the gut. And there's a reason why, you know, we're, we're talking about Lord Buckley, who was someone who was a performer and, and an artist. He was an artist and using it knowingly. And then we're holding it up as a light against, you know, uh, against politicians and, and ministers and those kind of things. But there's something... There's something archetypal. There's something just that it basically, like in a very basic way, it gets you in the gut. The rhythm takes you over. The tone takes you over. And it doesn't matter what you're listening to, you believe it because mm-hmm. you're swept along. And it is that feeling of being swept along with something. You know? Yeah. So, and it's a powerful it's magic. current. Yeah. It's yeah, a very yeah. powerful current. It's magic. It's, yeah. it's the same way that, you know, that a great soloist and we're going back to the jazz thing but a great soloist will play it and it doesn't matter if you understand it you just you just feel it you know it's the reason gospel music works so well it yeah. just you just feel it
0: well i mean again it's very musical isn't it because i mean and even i mean to use the more i mean certainly with jazz soloists you know a lot of people reject jazz because they feel like they don't understand it. And I think that's a really interesting question of whether something like that is supposed to be understood, you know, in Mm. air quotes, because there's lots of different ways to understand things, right? But feel it, feeling is something that you can do without understanding. But even if you took a more literal stance on, I don't know, something like uh, Robert Plant, right? Great blues singer, wailing away, you know, in his early twenties, late teens. I love Led Zeppelin, love a lot of those songs because of the style of his delivery. I can't tell you many of the words of any given songs. I know he's singing words, you know, about woman or whatever. Right. But I, more importantly, he's in a very tight pair of trousers and he's screaming something passionately at me. You know, and I think in music, even when there are words, it's more uh, we're easier to forgive the idea that we don't pick up exactly, you know, the lyrics of of the song. We get the overall feeling and, and somehow yeah. we're happier with that,
2: right? Totally. I think there's no coincidence that he grew out of the cabaret scene you know you can hear it in it it's obviously a a storytelling style that has been shaped by years of performance on stage you know there's 20 years performing to audiences and this this is the shape of it crazy character Crazy character, and apparently he used to spend a lot of his time. I've read a bit about him, but apparently he used to spend a lot of his time traveling from house to house, and he'd stay with people. And he was everyone kind of talks about him being this incredibly warm, generous, kind man. Like he was, I think he was very loved. And there was a poem that he did towards the end of his life that that is called "People." It says, "People, you are the most extraordinary flowers, and it's been an unmitigated pleasure to walk in your garden." And it was so. There's, there's, just, I think there's wow. such a generosity about him. As that's a beautiful.
0: That's beautiful? beautiful. Have you committed you, that to memory?
2: Yeah, I love it. It's, yeah. It, 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 as a piece of, just as just as as a little kind of vignette, the music in it, the, the performance of it is just gorgeous. But he was, I think he was something quite special. And like I, I think we said at the start, this track specifically um uh, inspired the beatles to write hey jude there's a line you know where he's talking about judas he says hey jude make it so and and they they listened to that in the studio and that became um they were that became the basis and the inspiration for them writing hey jude so i think it's these figures, as avant garde or as strange as they seem, have formed such an important part of popular culture everywhere, you know?
0: What an interesting man. Perhaps we'll look at some more of his stuff in coming episodes. We definitely at some point want to circle back to Ken Nordine. I think there's more there. But interesting that the two couldn't really be more different, yet they both uh, are such captivating storytellers, right? Yeah.
2: And I think. I- uh, the the fascinating thing in hearing both of them side by side for me is that we we're saying talking a lot about how Nordin, um how Nordine sat with music and placed his voice in unusual places on the beat, you know, phrasing almost like a jazz musician. And the interesting thing of hearing Lord Buckley against that is he is the music, his voice is the rhythm, you know, and the music sits underneath it. So it's almost uh, two very different approaches, but both with very different outcomes but both very musical approaches to storytelling.
0: You know, that central point to me of actually you can have excellent communicators, superb storytellers, and an audience doesn't understand a single word they've been yeah. told. To me, that's incredibly fascinating, right? Yeah. You know, the psychology around that and the fact that that happens in everyday life and happens in politics, you know, and fucking wars are launched and... yeah. Uh, you know dynasties are born on the back of someone being
2: interesting to listen to right yeah yeah and it's and it's happened it's happened for so long right that's that's yeah. how people get power is by using the voice and I mean, people use story as well. You know, you can't take that away. You know, you look at religions and you look at the things that they're based upon and Elwood and Hubbard, you know, like things like that. You know, you look yeah. at Scientology and they're, they're stories to create power or they're storytelling or oration to create power.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that idea of, I mean, creating power is an interesting phrase because I would have gone for something. I mean, I agree with you, but I would have gone for something more like it creates feeling right yeah. and so and i don't think there's always the nefarious um motivation behind it but i think there's something so fundamental to being human communicating and telling stories that essentially you're trying we're back to this word empathy again you're trying to excite or instill empathy in someone you're trying to make a relation to them make a connection with them and I think in the darker examples of what you're describing, perhaps there people are are trying to reach other people's anxieties, or uh, you know, talk about subconscious problems, address them in a way that offers salvation, offers relief. You know, in yeah. the case of the the preachers that you were talking about, if you would just get out your debit card and uh, yeah. and make a donation to the church. To the church of good story,
2: but, but I mean, look and look at you know politically thinking. That's how people get power. You look at the yeah. people who've held power in this country well, over the last period of time, and they're all good orators. You know, they're all they're yeah. all consci- uh, like aware of what they do. Like Farage, oh, th- he's a good storyteller. He's a he's oh Farage loves the sound of his own voice. And I mean, Trump is the
0: is the elephant, the orange elephant in the room that perhaps <laughs> we're not talking about in the sense yeah. that his ability to, uh, you know, speak lyrically and to tell a good story and to give people nothing. nicknames, but say nothing at all. No content. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, right? And people love him for that. And then you get this curious phrase. I mean, I'm jumping back and forth across the ocean here, but you get that curious phrase, uh, I think it was around Brexit, was it Gove that said people are sick and tired of listening to experts,
2: Yeah,
0: which has much been... Uh, you know, laughed about. But I think perhaps what he meant by that, and in a way he was, I guess, trying to be honest. And I think there's a, a, definitely truth in it, is that actually people want to be inspired. People want to be excited by their leaders. They don't want to listen to dry, sensible facts and information, you know, which is it, it, kind of terrifying. Uh, but, then as to, a,
2: but then to dig down into that, when we're talking about you want to be inspired, or, or is what we're saying that we want to be taken on? this kind of journey that we want to be um carried along and swept along by the rhythm of a voice by the tone of a voice we want
1: yeah.
2: to because the tone of a voice gives you the trust right so we've had that with nordine and, and with lord buckley in some ways that the tone of voice gives you this sense of i trust this person because they're landed in their own body and then the rhythm of it as we see with buckley gives you this kind of sense that you're being pulled along in a journey so is that mm. what we're talking about? You know, is it when we're talking about being inspired, being, being um, uh, that we that we trust and inspire someone and our le- and great leadership, we're actually talking about something that's actually quite musical.
0: Wow! Yeah, that trust is a really interesting word, isn't it? Because yes, I think trust is very important in the storyteller that you respect and that you admire, and also this sense of being of being pulled along, I think, is very musical. But also culturally, it's so necessary, you know, that we have leaders that offer some kind of vision of where all of this is going. Elon Musk, I find, to be an interesting character. But what seems to me to be so fascinating by him is that whenever I've seen him in interview, uh, he seems Completely unbelievable in Mm. the sense that he's lacking some fundamental storytelling skills, Mm. lauded as this great man of science, you know, this great engineer. Yet it seems amazing to me that someone could get into that level of power without having that silver tongue, you know, Mm. to tell a good story, to, to make me feel something about the vision that they have for the future or whatever it is. Mm. And I get a curiously the same thing with Biden in that clearly there's someone that has perhaps passed his prime of public speaking or, you know, he doesn't deliver very well in that sphere. I don't know what you think about that.
2: Yeah, but I think with Biden, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it was almost a point in time where they wanted the antithesis of trump he's they the wanted, anti-trump yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. and, and yeah. so it was like actually we need uh, we've given over ourselves to this and and we've lost our trust and so we need someone who's a safe pair of hands and a safe pair of hands is someone who speaks very slowly who doesn't push with the rhythm who speaks in a very kind of gentle tone yeah and so it's a, it's it's almost potentially in a kind of auditory sense at the opposite of what we've of of what's been received
0: Isn't that that fascinating? And then back to the Klaus Kinski idea of being a German and I mean, whatever was going through his head, but the idea of of the German people actively being angry that they've been fooled by or misled by passionate rhetoric, you know, that. That I find uh, really, really fascinating. You know, the stories are dangerous in that way, aren't they?
2: They are. And it's, and essentially, what Kinski was doing was copying the cadence of Hitler. You know, he was copying, and he would stand there shouting back at people, and he was, and it was this kind of cathartic experience on both sides. But it's, but I think it, there's something fascinating if you take all the words out of it. If you take a story, take a storyteller, take a narrator, take all the words out of it, and take all the personality out of it in some ways, and just have as as literally the music and the rhythm of the voice and the tone of the voice then then what happens to it
0: okay let's wrap it up we will be back again very yeah. soon with a new episode of the white tell stories podcast this one has been slightly more challenging for some technical reasons um but mainly because he's a slippery eel, I think, Lord Buckley. I'm going to endeavour to find out a little bit more about him. And perhaps we can revisit him at another another point. If it's the first time that you've heard him, as it was uh, for me, then I recommend if you're listening on certain podcast players, you can uh, access the time codes in the show notes, which will take you directly to the story. Listen to that again. I will be, uh, for sure, seeing what sense I can make out of it. Um, As ever, please do get in touch with us. If you are moved by the show, if you've got any kind of feedback, you can um, hit us up on any of the social media places. You can also get us at uh, info at academicpodcastagency.com. What's next for him, Dan? What should we look at in the next episode?
2: How about we have a listen to... Okay, this is a a bit of a... A strange one. It was a record that was put out in the 50s and was a big hit at the time. And it's by the Gordon Jenkins Orchestra. And it's a piece called Manhattan Tower, which is a kind of pretty experimental uh, radio play using voice and orchestra.
0: Okay. That sounds uh, very intriguing. All right. Let's set that up for the next episode. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Thanks Dan, well. really good to see you. And good to uh see you, too. See you on the next
1: episode. Right. See you then. bye. bye.